I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing some of the underappreciated ways that China is deepening its global influence and presence. That's the focus of a relatively new and exciting initiative here at CSIS called Hidden Reach. Hidden Reach specializes in using open-source intelligence and satellite imagery to examine China's global activities, with a focus on how China blends its military and scientific ventures to support Beijing's strategic objectives. Joining us today are my CSIS colleagues, Dr. Matthew Faniole and Brian Hart. Matthew is vice president of the CSIS Ideas Lab, Andreas Drakopoulos Chair in Innovation, and senior fellow with the China Power Project. He is the creator of the Hidden Reach Initiative. Brian is a fellow with the China Power Project, and he also supports the Hidden Reach Initiative. Matthew and Brian, thank you both for joining us today. It's great to be here. Thanks, Bonnie. Thanks, Bonnie, for having us on. So let's jump right in. What is Hidden Reach, and what was the motivation behind starting the project? Yeah, thanks, Bonnie. I'll jump in here. So it really is a question of why another China project, right? I mean, we, there's a thousand and one people that are researching China at any point in time. So what is Hidden Reach and how is it a little bit different? How does it distinguish itself? Although there's a growing body of research on China, it tends to be hyper-focused on just a handful of issues. Probably top of mind for most people is Taiwan and for good reason. We certainly need to have robust discourse on Taiwan. But in everyone focusing on two or three different aspects of U.S.-China relations, there's these blind spots. And in some cases, there's these pretty big blind spots. These are crucial elements of China's growing footprint overseas, its growing influence that are either poorly understood or there's just a lot of ambiguity and misunderstanding about what's going on. And, and that's really where Hidden Reach comes into play. It's it's designed to shed light on underappreciated sources of China's overseas influence and then contextualize the significance for the policy community. A lot of these are, are sort of things that can fly under the radar until they eventually bubble up. And, and we sort of see that happening now. You know, we did a report a couple of weeks ago on oceanographic survey vessels in the Indian Ocean. And sure enough, it's something that's in the news now with different countries having different takes about what the real purpose of those missions are. And we can Certainly talk about that in a little bit. The other big goal is to kind of cut through some technical jargon. There's this recurring conversation about dual use and what dual use means and dual use applications of this or that. But usually it's very poorly discussed in terms of, okay, this is the kind of technology we're talking about. What does dual use actually mean in that situation? How does it support China's military modernization? How does it support its commercial development? How does it support its scientific endeavors? And so Hidden Reach is situated at that intersection, right? These issues that are important, but that aren't getting attention, and that maybe there is just this technical hurdle that we have to get over in order for people to really understand the policy significance. And Matthew, what issues has Hidden Reach covered? And how many reports to date have been released? Well, I think it's like most researchers, not as many as we wish we could have, but we have five major reports out and then one sort of short piece related to it. And we've kind of run the gamut of different topic sets. So we've looked at ground stations in, in South America that China operates. Those are the terrestrial leg of China's space program, how it communicates with its assets in space. We've looked at its port infrastructure investments along the Strait of Hormuz, which is critical for its energy interests and is starting to set 
the conditions for China to have an increased logistics presence in the Strait of Hormuz, which may in the future set the stage for China to open a, a second military base in the area. We've looked at its scientific endeavors in the polar region, how its scientific efforts overlap with its commercial and military interests. We did another report on gallium, which was a critical mineral no one was really talking about until China started to put export controls into place, but is something that nonetheless is essential for a number of defense applications. And then our last report, which we put out last month, looked at oceanographic surveying, particularly in the Indian Ocean and the dual-use applications therein for China's growing maritime presence in the Indian Ocean region. And you mentioned there was a short report. What was the short report on? Yeah, so this is on just submarine diplomacy. So before we got that Indian Ocean piece out, we were looking into the different ways in which China has used military diplomacy with countries like Bangladesh and selling at a discounted rate submarines and also helping to construct a military base there, a submarine base there. It didn't fit with the Indian Ocean piece so cleanly when we were looking at surveying operations. So we just kind of spun out and talked about China's submarine diplomacy with countries in the region. Thank you. It seems like at least four of your reports have benefited from the use of satellite imagery. Could you explain how you've used satellite imagery and how has it enabled you to shed light on information about Chinese activities that we didn't have before? Yeah, I'll jump in here. We've used satellite imagery a lot, in, both in hidden reach, but also in the broader work that CSIS is doing on China and other issues. You know, in the last, I'd say, decade or so, there's really been a big proliferation of the use of commercial satellite imagery. If you think back to the Cold War days and things like that, satellite imagery really was once the purview of governments and governments of great powers that have these big, expensive, sophisticated satellites that can take images from space. But now you have commercial companies like Maxar and Airbus and Planet that can do provide a lot of information and have really wide coverage with satellite imagery. And so there's been a growing cohort of what we call open source intelligence or OSINT analysts around the world who now use this. I think for many people that comes from Google Earth, which is you know a free resource that you can use to look at current and historical imagery. But at CSIS, we're leveraging as much as we can the most recent imagery, which requires some resources. So we're trying to connect the resources that CSIS has. We have an internal team of satellite imagery analysts. Joe Bermudez is a senior fellow for imagery analysis, and he really supports, he and his team really support a lot of the work that we do. And I would say that we have typically used satellite imagery to play two main roles in our work. One is, I think, the narrative component and just being able to visually show readers something which otherwise might feel really abstract. So kind of putting a visual image to a place that they have no idea what it actually looks like on the ground. So that provides some context for what they're looking at. The other is is more of kind of this investigative tool. And I think being able to show, for example, where Chinese military assets like naval vessels are overseas, what they're doing. Sometimes satellite imagery is the only way that you can actually get good information about what's going on in certain places, especially China often will try to conceal some of the things that it's doing in open sources. You know, they're not reporting on things. So you have to rely on satellite imagery as a tool to get better information. And I think we've really tried to leverage that to the greatest effect that we can to add a layer of extra evidence to the work that we're doing in terms of collecting data from open sources. But satellite imagery really helps to layer it on here and provide an additional kind of evidence for people. 
I think the last thing I'll say on this is satellite imagery is really kind of an asymmetric advantage for the U.S. and I think open societies. It's a big benefit that China really doesn't, you know, Chinese analysts aren't really using satellite imagery to a significant effect because I think you'll often see Chinese authorities trying to kind of delegitimize satellite imagery as a tool. Of course, the Chinese government has its own assets to use satellites to track activities, but their open source analysts are not really leveraging these because it creates a sensitive problem for them about whether they want to legitimize this as something that the U.S. and others can use to expose Chinese activities. So for us, we view it as kind of a big asymmetric advantage that we have in terms of tracking what China's doing. Thank you, Brian. I do want to ask you and Matthew, what are some of the overarching themes that you've discovered as you've looked at Chinese activities across these five reports? And related to the satellite imagery question, were there things that you found in your report using satellite imagery that you weren't able to identify through other sources of information? I'll take a stab at that first and pass it over to Brian. And just to follow up for something that Brian said, a shout out to Jennifer June, who also works with Joe on our imagery. And I probably should have mentioned at the top also a shout out to Aiden Power Riggs, who also works on the, the Hidden Reach project. Brian and I tend to get all the credit for it, but we have a, a lot of support at the center for the work that we're doing. So to your question, right? So what are some of the themes that come out of this? I'll be honest, when we started this, I'm not sure we entirely knew what we were going to find. We knew that there were these issues that weren't getting talked about. We knew that there were things that we were certainly interested in. Brian and I have been using satellite imagery to look at China's naval modernization for years. But we, we didn't entirely know where we were going to come down on some of these issues. But what's kind of emerged just organically through the research process is that where there is the most need, what issues are getting missed and what we're most interested in tends to be this blending of the science and technology with the commercial and the military, right? So how do all those things play together? And I'll give an example from our first report. This is the one I mentioned earlier that looked at ground stations in South America. China operates a number of different ground stations in different locations so that it has coverage for its assets in space. But Although people have been asking these questions, no one had really spelled out what dual use meant in this context. And we spent a lot of time trying to read through physics textbooks, but we're, we're not physicists. And thankfully, we were able to call some friends at MIT and other places to explain things to us. But we we're able to look and say, OK, we know what China is reported to have in terms of antenna at a particular site. And this is the Espacio Lajana site in Argentina. We could look at satellite imagery and confirm that that was actually the case, right? We could measure the diameter of the antenna and all those pieces of information, along with some technical components that we were able to get, let us know what different types of bands that particular instrument could operate on. And so the satellite imagery there was essential for us to say, okay, yeah, this is a 35 meter antenna and 35 meter antennas can operate on these frequencies and on these bands. And if you know those kind of things, you can get to that dual use question of what are the commercial applications, what are the scientific applications, and how might some of these bands also be used for military applications. And that approach has kind of set the stage for most of the work that we've done. It's kind of focused on these new frontiers of competition between China and other countries, so space certainly being one of the, the main ones that we've focused on. But also, we've looked at deep sea exploration. We haven't touched on deep sea mining, but that would be a corollary of it. But then also the polar regions as well. And these are sort of spaces that are critically important, but that 
there's not enough research on and where, and I think this is really important, and I'll, I'll kind of pass it over to Brian, because I'm sure he'll want to jump in here, areas where China sees an opportunity for it to establish itself as a leading power, either to displace or challenge the United States, or in some cases where the U.S. really isn't paying all that much attention to, and China wants to establish itself as a leading partner in that area for other countries that might be interested in scientific research or scientific diplomacy. And all the while, it feeds back into those other aspects, into the commercial, into the military aspect of it as well. And Brad, I don't know if you want to jump in and talk about MCF, because I'm, I'm sure you do. Yeah, this is one of my favorite topics that kind of appears in, I would say, most, if not all of the work that we've done, which is China's military civil fusion or MCF strategy. This is, as Matthew's kind of hinted at, this is the blending of military and civilian efforts. Great powers have really kind of always done this. This is something the United States has has done for decades in terms of leveraging spin-on and spin-off technologies. Things like DARPA, which is a, a defense project, helped to create a lot of the civilian technologies that we use today around the world. It was helped to incubate the early versions of the internet. And this has also existed in China for a long time, too. I mean, even since the days of Mao Zedong, you've had China trying to blend civilian efforts to support the military and military efforts to support civilian development. But under Xi Jinping and over the last decade, this has really taken on a new level of priority. Xi Jinping has kind of put his own personal stamp on this issue and elevated MCF. He chairs the MCF Central Commission within the Chinese Communist Party, which again, really elevates its status. He's made it clear that this is an issue that he wants China to invest in. And the goal for MCF goes beyond just spin-on and spin-off technologies and things like that. It really is more about, as the word they use, fusing their military and civilian development, fusing their strategy for long-term economic development so that it supports the military's long-term modernization. And we see this appearing in a lot of ways. Even outside of Hidden Reach, the China Power Project, we've used satellite imagery to show how China is really leveraging, for example, dual-use airports in its Western Theater Command along the border of India to maximize their ability to be able to project air power. So you have increasing number of dual-use airports showing up in that area where the PLA can base aircraft at civilian airports and kind of maximize resource sharing. Within you know, our hidden reach work, I think we've been able to show, for example, okay, if this is, for example, in our most recent report, if this is a, a civilian, an ostensibly civilian vessel that's doing research in the Indian Ocean, we can track where that vessel is going using AIS data that, that tracks the, the vessel's movements. And we can see that it goes to returns to a home port, you know, a certain port in China. With satellite imagery, we can show that's not just a normal port, and that vessel is going to areas where there's clear military activity. And in some instances, we see civilian research vessels tied up to PLA vessels or sitting really close to PLA vessels. And often these large civilian ships are being made in, in shipyards that are making ships for the Chinese military. So using satellite imagery kind of is one of the ways that we help to level up our ability to unpack the ways that China's leveraging its resources to advance its MCF strategy. So I think that's been, been a key thing that we've tried to weave throughout the work that we do. So it seems to me that there are two main overarching themes that you discussed. One is military-civil fusion, and the second is that China is moving more into what you call the new frontiers of competition, trying to displace U.S. influence or placing China in a better position in U.S.-China competition. So with respect to the first overarching theme, 
As you look across your five major reports, are you seeing more or more Chinese expansion under the guise of civilian activity, or is that too hard to quantify based on what you're seeing now? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think what we're seeing are, are echoes of strategies that were put into place a long time ago, right? Where certainly science opens the door for China in a lot of different ways, and that. Door can be in exploring potential military applications. That could be commercial applications, and we're just kind of picking up on what is available through open source intelligence. The way that I, I like to think about it is about the data itself, right? If there's useful information that is being collected or can be collected from a scientific outpost in Antarctica, for instance, and there is a potential military application of that data that's been collected. It's hard for me to think that the PLA wouldn't get access to it. And then on top of that, it's also what kind of research is being funded. You know, a lot of research in China goes through, you know, universities and other institutes. They get money from the central government the same way that the, the U.S. government funds university projects. But there's limited resources, right? So what kind of projects are going to be funded? So even if you have Chinese scientists, and one point I, I want to emphasize. I'm sure we'll, we'll say this a few times on the call because we don't want to give the wrong impression. Is that you know Chinese scientists are doing real research and they are leading researchers in a lot of these different fields, but the projects that they're getting sponsored for oftentimes have these other applications that that go along with them, and they might not necessarily know how the information that they're collecting is going to be used later in some of these other applications. So. Is there an increase? I don't know. It'd be it'd be hard to tell. We probably haven't been doing the project long enough. But what I would say is that it's a pronounced feature of the different issues that we've looked at. That science is this gateway for China to advance its military and its commercial interests, and it's all kind of happening at, at the same time. Matthew and Brian, with respect to the second major theme that you outlined of China operating in the new frontiers of competition. What caused you to focus on South America, the Strait of Hormuz, the polar regions, and the Indian Ocean? Was it because Chinese strategists and officials have noted the importance of these regions, or was there something else that drove you to focus on them? I think it's a combination of things. I think a lot of it is our team tries to look at the, the overall landscape of work that's being done in, in tracking China's overseas activities and. Building on it from there,、uh, and for example, I think one of the things we really try to do is look where there's been some reporting on an issue, but really no follow up and no in depth analysis on on what's going on. So a good example of that actually is our first Eyes on the Skies report, where we looked at China's ground stations in Latin America. You know, there had been reporting about China having access to this facility. There were a few media reports on this that sparked some interest. But there wasn't much follow up. There wasn't really an investigation of explaining in you know cutting through some of the as Matthew said some of that technical jargon to explain how it can actually serve China's interest. And there wasn't much in terms of unpacking what the impact would be on those countries in the region or the United States, since the United States, especially in Latin America, has significant strategic, political, economic interests. So part of it has been seeing what's been done and, and seeing where there's actually more work to be done. That where it really just hasn't been enough looking into what's going on 
On the other end, I think, for example, why we looked at the Indian Ocean, it's a little, a little bit of a similar thing in our recent report. So there's obviously been years of work, especially by our colleagues here at CSS with the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative, looking at China's activities in the South China Sea. Uh, but there'd been less attention paid to the Indian Ocean. But we know based on Chinese strategic documents that outside of its immediate periphery of the East China Sea and the South China Sea, the Indian Ocean is kind of another key maritime area that they talk about as being the next frontier in terms of their expanding strategic periphery. So we, we saw this as an opportunity to look at what China has been doing and kind of bringing new light into that. So yeah, I think it's a combination of what what's missing from the conversation and also connecting that with where we see Chinese kind of strategic level writings indicating as new areas of interest. Thank you, Brian. Matthew, let me turn to you to ask about your recent report on China's dual-use research in the Indian Ocean. Brian has mentioned how important the Indian Ocean is as the PLA thinks about its periphery. What were some of the main findings of this research, and what did you see as most significant? Yeah, thanks, Bonnie. The reason the report made such a splash is that it is the first open source research, at least that I'm aware of, that details the connections between the Chinese military and China's fleet of oceanographic research vessels. Uh, These are civilian ships that survey and study the world's oceans. And what we found in looking at hundreds of thousands of hours of survey operations is that we were able to identify 64 civilian research vessels that have been active since 2020. And we found that over 80% of them, 52 in total, had connections to either the Chinese military or had engaged in otherwise, shall we say, questionable behavior at sea, right? Behavior that's indicative of something that not likely research or not entirely research, something that's designed to support Beijing's geopolitical objectives. And in the Indian Ocean, which is where we concentrated our analysis, every Chinese research vessel that had been active since 2020, and it's the 13 vessels in total, all of them had those problematic ties, those problematic dual-use connections back to the Chinese security apparatus. Great. Thank you. I'd like to wrap up this podcast with two final questions. The first is, when you look at the reactions that your research has generated, whether that's from the United States, China, or third countries, what does that mean in terms of what the United States should do moving forward? What type of feedback are you getting, and how is that feedback shaping what you think the United States should pay more attention to? Yeah, so I'll I'll take the first question there. In terms of U.S. and allied responses, I think think it's kind of been two parts. One is that some of it has just been genuinely new and there's been really significant interest in a lot of the work. For example, there's a a lack of understanding of what's going on, for example, in Antarctica. And so for us to be able to show, especially Australia, which is one of the countries closest to the Antarctic region, being able to show what China is doing in terms of building its new scientific research facility there, but also showing what kind of assets it has and what it might be able to do that's relevant to Australia's security. Those kinds of issues, I think, have been really welcome because they shed new light on things that that weren't being tracked. On the other side, I think we have heard basically a response that, yes, these governments were already tracking some of these issues, but it has largely been based on classified work. And so there really hasn't been many opportunities to kind of expose what China's doing. And so some of the work that we're doing helps some of these countries to allow that information to get out and to do so in an unclassified and open source setting. So I think that's another area where we see 
our work being of value. And interestingly, on the Chinese side, you know, a couple of our reports have made it to the questioning of uh, Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs press briefings. And of course, the Chinese response is typically always just to reject our findings in general and to try to cast doubt on that. The most interesting example of that, I think, by the way, was in our most recent report that came out in January about the Indian Ocean, a couple of days before we released that, Sri Lanka made this decision on their own to try to basically put a, a moratorium, a pause on, on Chinese research vessels going there. We had nothing to do with that. That just happened to coincidentally be timed with the release of our report. But I think some in China tried to, to use that to say an American think tank is trying to dictate terms in the region or to try to time this well with what's going on in the region. And, and so I think there's an effort there to try to push back against our research. But I think that instance was just coincidence and timing. Just to quickly like build off of that, the narrative that you'll hear, whether it's a Global Times hit piece put out to try to undermine our research or, you know, from a MOFA press conference is drawing attention to this is in line with scientific research and that China is just trying to contribute to the global good. The important thing here is that it can be both things at the same time, right? China can do real research in these different domains, and its research can contribute to things like understanding climate change, understanding weather patterns, understanding how to operate technology in, in hostile environments. But that does not exclude it from also having a military application, right? So the Chinese response has been, hey, we're just doing, we're just doing science. We're just scientists and we're just doing what great powers do. And that's true. But then there's these other applications as well. So it's just this, it's this both sides aspect of it that I think is really important. Great. Thank you. And last question, what are your upcoming projects? Yeah, so we, we have a few things in the work. One area that we're looking at is building on the work that we did when focusing on ground stations in South America and specifically looking at Cuba. There was you know, some news that came out about China operating signal intelligence sites in Cuba. And we feel like there's been some coverage of that, but there could be a much deeper conversation, especially in the context of how Cuba served as a site for signal intelligence for the Soviet Union during the Cold War and, and what China is doing there now, trying to just really get to the bottom of exactly what that looks like and, and ties in a little bit more with where China is, is sort of looking in the Caribbean to expand its influence. We're also looking into the construction of different government buildings across Africa and elsewhere that have been sponsored or constructed by Chinese entities. And there's obviously that big controversy a few years ago with the African Union building and people accusing the Chinese of tapping the building during the construction of it. And so we want to look and see what other government and institution buildings, embassies, things of that nature have been built by Chinese companies or with sponsorship from China and see who the actors are there and whether or not there's anything that suggests that China might be trying to use those as a way of gaining intelligence through some somewhat questionable means. And then we're also going to be continuing our work on oceanographic surveying. We focused on the Indian Ocean, but we got such a large response from it that we're going to expand that to look at some other areas as well. Awesome. Such fascinating research. Thank you so much, Matthew and Brian, for joining me today. Thanks, Bonnie. Thanks for having us on. Thanks, Bonnie.